and uh, you know what? Probably if I had this to control this with, it might work better. I can't do this and, and it work right, right? No, uh, no remote in my fingers. Like I said, we have come a long way in Romans chapter 8. We have come to what would be a soaring pinnacle. Um, I think we're left breathless with this. Uh, all of Romans 8, but as we have progressed upward and upward, we've ascended and ascended, we've soared and we've soared. And we have arrived at the last great paragraph of Romans 8. Tremendous commentators have called this the hymn of assurance. A triumph song. The highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. Whoa, wait a minute. Did you hear that one? The highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. Coming all the way to glory and then knowing this is all true and we will never lose our salvation. Absolute assurance. You know, these descriptions that we give about being up on the highest plateau and such, they're all too weak. We can't really get it into a human language. But this is a mountaintop paragraph that we are at. It's the Everest, Mount Everest of the whole letter of Romans. And thus it is the highest peak in the, really, the Himalayan of all the Himalayan ranges, this is the highest of all the Himalayans. That's where we're at, folks. That's why I need a lot of help in presenting this because I don't want to treat it lower than what it is. How do I get it there? Only by the power of God's Word and His Spirit. Uh, it will not be because of me, but we've made our way up this steep, steep incline. This ascent and it's the highest of all doctrines of where we have been here in the last few weeks and where we are at right now. We're able to look out over the beautiful view of the rest of Romans, the second half of Romans, 9 through 16. And they are beautiful, but they're somewhat lower vistas of the book of Romans. Not that they're less than. We're just saying when you get up to the very height of who God is and what He's done and for eternity and then where He's placed us and knowing that we are secure in Him no matter what, uh, how much, how further can you go uh, than speaking of final glorification and such? For the time being, we are on this peak, folks. That's why I've kind of taken our time and I really slowed down in the maybe a verse at a time and even shorter than that because I want us to make sure that we see from this high peak and don't miss the view because it's incredible. It would be something to go up uh, Pike's Peak or go uh, to the highest mountain and then you walk up there and you look at it, look down and go, oh, that's nice, and then walk back down. Well, we don't want to treat this high peak here like that, and that's why we're really taking a look. We just came from the golden chain of redemption, folks. Is there anything higher than that? It's all about God. And, of course, that explained how salvation came. 
and where it started from and then where it's going. It, it takes the whole array. It's vast. And out of that we get the absolute certainty, the absolute surety, guarantee of our salvation. There is no room at all for wiggle to be able to get out of this salvation if we're really His. We spent some valuable time on this golden chain and we looked at foreknowledge, we looked at predestination, we looked at His calling, we looked at His justification of us and His glorification of us. He did it. He's the one responsible for it all. Why? would any Christian ever, ever think that it's possible that he could lose his salvation? Why is that? Why would anybody do that if they read just this chapter alone? But the thing is, is that it's all throughout Scripture. But there's no chapter like this one that has as much about who God is and what His plan is and eternal security all in one chapter. It's amazing. And I have to say, how could a Christian miss this? One of the most valuable chapters in all of the Bible. How could they miss this gleaming jewel of a diamond? How could they miss this? My question is that all the time. And I would not necessarily call all of them unbelievers because they miss it, but of the highest doctrines... Why? How? Uh, and you say, well, who are those people? Do I know any? Well, we can start with mainline denominations. The Lutherans, by the way, Martin Luther did not believe you could lose your salvation. He was truly of Reformed theology. He was the one that was responsible for a lot of it getting moving. Uh, it's always been here from the very plan of God and salvation. But, uh, yes, the Lutherans believe that you can lose salvation. Who else would believe that? And that's coming from a Reformed background. Well, uh, I think Melanchthon probably had a lot to do with that as he softened things down and the Lutherans went along the line of um, a different a little bit of man-based, even though it's very grace-centered. So I'm not knocking the Lutherans, but I'm just telling you, as solid as they can be, uh, they are amiss at this point, and it saddens me. But then there's a group called the Methodist. That is a mainline denomination, and they certainly believe, uh, after their founder, John Wesley, that you can choose and you can lose. And so it goes if you believe that you can choose salvation, you can choose God, you can also lose it. Uh, the Church of the Nazarene, they believe you can lose salvation. Take the whole Pentecostal camp, I would say all of them, and Charismatics, for the very most part, would be in that camp that you could lose salvation. Uh, you keep going at a uh, church of Christ, a uh, Christian church, disciples of Christ. You go on and on. Those are many, many denominations right there. Assembly of God, who would be the Pentecostal. As for the most part, I would say I could be wrong. 
uh, there probably are few groups there that would believe that uh, your eternal security, you, you have it, it's secure. But most theology, if it's man-centered for getting into heaven, it's by your choice, then it'll also be your choice to get out. Uh, Southern Baptists are a little bit of a strange kind of a group in the sense that they hold true to many of the Reformed theologies and they definitely believe in eternal security. It's just when it comes to either election or who Christ died for them is where the Baptists have uh, a main problem. Most Southern Baptists that are conservative would be, cons they considered them to be four-point Calvinists. Uh, that one being the limited atonement really trips them up. And so therefore, but I, I definitely would say that they, Baptists are known for once saved, always saved. Only thing is with that once saved, always saved, which is what I believe, which is what you believe, once saved, always saved, uh, can get into a situation where people are so free in Christ they can do whatever they want. They can uh, commit their lives to Satan and worship Him. But once you've made that profession of faith and got baptized, you're a believer forever, once saved, always saved. So that can be taken a little loose. It's actually theologically correct. If you are saved, you are saved forever. Uh, so we could go on and on with groups, but that's some of the main line that covers a lot of them, doesn't it? It covers most of what modern evangelicalism today. Now, with that set aside, and I'm not going to hit on that anymore, we're going to see that there are questions that are put forth from starting at verse 31 all the way to the end of the chapter through 39. By the way, there was one other big group that would be considered to lose salvation. That would be the Roman Catholics. We, we have to put that in there because they definitely will believe that. Any Roman Catholic that you uh, talk to, you'll never run into them and say, well, you know, I'm, in, I'm saved, I'm in, I'm in Christ, so therefore I can, uh, I can lose my salvation, though, if I so choose. And uh, yes, they believe that uh, very much so because it's very much works-centered salvation. Do you see what the difference is between works-based salvation and grace-based salvation? Grace-based salvation starts with foreknowledge and predestination. That's where it all starts. It's all God. And you see that He did it. He did it. He did it. Now, we've hammered on that, and we'll move on. But we have these questions, and we will see that as far as one who believes they can lose salvation, they really cannot answer it. It really comes down to nothing can have that effect on the ones who are true believers. So, with that being said, let's read the text for today. Romans 8, 31 and 32. Let's stand. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Father, we thank You for Your truth and we have been taking our time in a passage that is so precious. And it shows how high You are. And what You have done for us, put us into Your family. We have been adopted and we have put into an eternal security 
because of your plan, your purpose. And we stand back amazed. It is all for your glory, by your grace, in Jesus' name. starts off with he uh, what then shall we say to these things after we have just finished 828 through 30 and 828 started with all things he works together for good to those who are called according to his purpose to those who love him we know that he causes all things to work together and then we see that great chain of redemption. And that definitely would be the answer to what then shall we say to these things. What are these things? We've just seen them. 28 through 30. But let's take it back further and let's look in Romans 8 where we started in Romans 8 or uh, chapter 1. Let's go back to 1. Verse uh, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the verse that really kicked it off for Martin Luther. The whole reform movement and its justification by faith. You'll notice there, the righteous man or the just shall live by faith. If you look in verse 16, it starts it off with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God. Of salvation. It's what converts our souls the gospel is what converts us. The good news being presented. And we trust in that and we live by that. The righteous people, the just people, the saints, the ones who are called, the ones who are justified, the ones who are, will be glorified, live by faith right now. And so, therefore, it's the very power of God. The gospel is. And so what he does is he builds on that in chapter 2, chapter 3, especially chapter 4, justified by faith. Because we are sinners in chapters 2 and 3, and then we see what Christ did at the end of 3, and then in 4 he gives the example of Abraham. He lived by faith. David, King David, two great men of the Old Testament time period that the Jews looked up to and both of them were saved because it was by faith that God had given them and they lived by faith. So the just shall live by faith. Abraham and David were and all the other Old Testament saints and anybody who's born again uh, is uh, the one who is justified by faith. The cry of the Reformation. It's the power of God. So now what we're going to do, we're going to have two points today. One of them is power the power of God, and number two is the love of God. The power and the love of God. That is why we can know that we are secure in salvation. It's not just a Baptist thing or a Reformed thing. It's the biblical thing. 
So I would challenge anybody who believes that they could do something. You could kill somebody and lose your salvation. Well, if you're saved, you actually could do some of the most heinous sins. If you're really saved, you are saved forever. And so I'd say, oh, I can't believe that. We'll just look throughout Scripture and you will find that that is true. That's why it's by grace that we're saved through faith, that not yourselves. The power of God. God is almighty. When somebody does the attributes of God, one of them is the fact that He is omnipotent, or omni, which is all potent, being powerful. He is all-powerful. There is nobody that's omnipotent except God Himself. Omnipotent. Almighty. He created by His power. He sustains today by His power. He controls everything by His power. Everything. All things. So the question is asking this. Is there any conceivable power that can prevent our arriving at glorification? That's the question. Is there any conceivable power? What, what is it? We can think of a number of powerful, formidable things, but can they thwart the purpose of God and His power? Now, what Paul has asserted already is that God has done everything in connection with what salvation is. is. He has done it all. Jesus Christ, whenever He did it in action at the cross, He said what? Three words. It is finished. He did it all. He lived it, then He died. Father, into my, Thy hands I commit my spirit. He had done the work. He had taken our sins upon Him and He died for that. Now, he has done everything He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. However, there is a challenger who asks whether or not it's possible that some power could arise and rob us of the ultimate glory. A lot of times we can say on certain things, well, it's possible. Christ could come back for the tribulation. Well, it's highly possible, but there could be some things there that hey, we could be taking wrong. Is it possible? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but is it possible that some power could rise and take away our glorification? As we live in Christ today, can that happen? What shall we say to these things? And so, so we went through uh, our Romans 1, we went through, actually in Romans 5, you start having, we were in Adam, and now we are in Christ. So Romans 5, 12-21 talks about us being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Then we get to Romans 8, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not condemned, you are justified. And so he, uh, he finishes all that justification up and then he starts saying, okay, because of justification, the Holy Spirit works in you. And this is the Holy Spirit chapter, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is in you and you are living the life of Christ. And He gives you the power to live that. 
Uh, we are now working with Christ. We are not glorified yet, so therefore we still battle sin and we still give in to temptation. We still sin. But we are being sanctified no matter what you think, no matter what uh, you think you are. If you're His, you are being sanctified. And He will do everything it takes to make you holy or sanctified. So we have sanctification. We have sonship. Remember that? We are sons of God. We have been adopted. We are brothers with Christ. We have the inheritance that is waiting for us. Everything of the universe. That's what Romans 8 says. I wouldn't want to make that up. <clears throat> Sounds far-fetched. And then he also says suffering. We have the suffering now. That's all part of the sanctification. He's setting us apart. What do we say to these things? That's the question. Well, there's only one conclusion. And we can say this objectively. If God is for us, who can be against us? I think it's even more accurate to say, instead of if, since. Uh, does your translation have that? How do you know that? Since God is for us, who is against us? After all these things that we have been studying... Since God is for us, look what He's done for us. We're sons of God. We're being sanctified, glorified, all of that. Who can be against us? Well, you know, I know there's a lot of things that come against us, right? <clears throat> Who is the most formidable enemy that we face? Satan and his force of demons. Uh, matter of fact, Ephesians 6, verse 12 warns us about this enemy as we live here on this earth today. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he says to resist in that evil day. Stand firm. Well, he's speaking about a supernatural enemy here. You can say, well, it's against the rulers. It's against the rulers that we have here in this country and rulers in the world. Not in this case. Because really they fall under the command of the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of this world, as First John says, is Satan. We have a battle against the enemy. One of the enemies is Satan. Can Satan have enough power to destroy our salvation and our glorification? Can he do that? Well, obviously not. Even through all the things that we've looked at, it's God says here in Romans 8, well, what will we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we know that people are against us uh, and our own flesh works against the, the new spiritual man. There's an against there that, yeah, that's for real. That does happen. Satan is not for us. He's against us. But what we're saying is that no matter what the enemy does, God's plan and that His plan for us is not going to be thwarted. His purpose is going to come true without any problem. 
from God. And that's the idea if we were to look up ahead in Romans 8.37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So there are things that come up against us, but they never win. And of course, in that famous verse 35, he says, Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Well, you know, that comes against us, right? But ultimately, what does it say here in all these things? We overwhelmingly supersede. We conquer. Nike, victorious through Him who loved us. Because He has a perfect love. And a perfect love casts out fear. So as Christians, we really have no reason to fear. Fear not. Say, well, there's a dark enemy that's arising. China is getting more and more powerful. What about all those nations that could come against us? What about inside our own country where we have leaders who are against this country? They hate it and they'll tell you that. What about them? Well, what about them? Are they in God's plan? Well, God's plan is coming through the way that He has desired to do it. And that gets into the depth where we can't even really understand, but we battle not against even people that are so powerful right now. They're not powerful. God has them in His finger. He's dangling them. Because if He went through a Jonathan Edwards sermon, uh, it would be a warning to them that He's dangling them over the deep, dark water below you walk on a rickety bridge with holes in it and the steps are giving way as you're trying to climb. It's like a spider that a kid might just play with an insect and torment them. God doesn't just torment people to torment them, but they are because they do not love God. They want their own plan, want their own purpose. Unless He converts them, then He will change their minds. Now we know that Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together. All things. What then shall we say to these things? There we go. All things there in 28. The golden chain in 29 and 30. And... His purpose that's seen throughout. What shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? Our flesh is the beachhead of all the sin, the temptation. The beachhead. That's where it really gives in. It's the flesh. And we should be able to defeat every sin that comes up in temptation. We have the power we often give in. We are weak. But even at that, God is on our side. God is working on our behalf. He's fighting for us. And we're fighting on His side. We have terrible, terrible foes. The power that we have here. Does this give you guys great comfort? 
What's the purpose of all this? Whenever these things come, personally, to the whole body of Christ, when they come, draw upon these things. These promises that He has, this is how we live it. Through the thick and through the thin, for the good, the bad, the indifferent. I'm going to go through some Old Testament passages. A lot of them are going to be in the Psalms. We're going to start out in the Old Testament and see what kind of God that we have. I brought up Martin Luther earlier, and he wrote a song that everybody knows. A mighty fortress is our God. He based that out of a hymn, uh, or out of a psalm that was Psalm 46. And it's talking about a fortress. God is the one who wins no matter what foes we have. And so the power of God is seen there in a tremendous way as we look at it. It should give us nothing but hope and comfort and assurance. Luther, uh, of course, did the theses and nailed them to the door. And it caused all sorts of a ruckus. And of course, the Roman Catholics had all sorts of problems with that because it went against the grain. And he was just challenging them. And he was not trying to change the Roman Catholic realm and change it into the Lutheran denomination. That's never what he set out to do. He was just saying there's problems biblically that we have here. And he come to find out more and more that they had a huge problem with what salvation is. If you have that one wrong... What else are you going to have wrong? Well, that's the most important thing. So he started challenging them and they brought him before their courts. And his conscience told him, and his conscience bore witness to him that he was to stand on the Word of God and the very truth. And it said in much tradition that he said, Here I stand. He was not going to budge. He wouldn't move. He was not going to recant. Although all that was coming through his mind. And what this means is he's going to get kicked out of the Catholic Church. And what's more, him being a heretic could be killed. But yet he could not. He would not. He did not recant. God was on his side. God is for me. Because, as it was later put by the English writers, he was furled to the Word of God. He could not back off of what he knew to be truth. He couldn't do anything else. And so, when the Diet of Council adjourned, German friends formed a ring around Martin Luther that protected him. The Spaniards were shouting, to the fire with him! To the fire! They wanted to condemn him and kill him right there. Within a week, he was kidnapped by his friends because they knew that uh, he would be killed. His, kid, his friends kidnapped him and took him off to the Wartburg Castle. And that's where he remained and that's where he actually translated the New Testament into popular language of German. Out of the Latin, he wrote this hymn there. A mighty fortress is our God. And this reflected the very spirit of triumph 
If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can harm us? God is powerful. Who can be more formidable than that? I think of this great hymn. Based out of that Psalm 46, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. See, His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not His equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through Him with us sighteth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So, Martin Luther says that. Let's go to that psalm now and see how that inspired him to write such tremendous words of comfort. Psalm 46. This is about God being the refuge, God being the fortress. We are in the fortress of God. Here we go. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Even right now, He's there. Therefore, we will not fear. Fear not. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations, look at this, made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He's our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought and desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So being in a fortress that Luther was, he transferred that as he was being protected 
to what God does in the ultimate spiritual realm. Wow, that is powerful. That's the kind of God we have. Let's go back to Genesis 15.1 involving Abraham. What does God say here? Is God powerful? Our point one is God is power. God is powerful. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, now here's the very word of God, came right to Abraham. What does he say? Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. What a promise. I'm your shield. You'll get a great reward. And, of course, Abraham believes this. So we move on to uh, Psalm 23, verse 4. Psalm 23. Everybody's familiar with that Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here's verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We all like that, don't we? Unbelieving people like to have this song read. The thing is, is do they, they, they know the song, but do they know who the author is? God. That's the point. Look in chapter 27 of Psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evil doers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. That's why we read these things. Be confident how often? Always. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell, live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Look at Him. Take rest. Dwell on Him and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will conceal me in His tabernacle. He will hide me there. In the secret place of His tent, He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me and will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Verse 14, skip ahead. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord because He's your very strength. Go to Psalm... Did we read Psalm 46? We did that, right? We already did that. Chapter 84, verse 11. Psalms. 84, verse 11. Oh, we should be a confident group of people. How lovely are your dwelling places is how this one starts off with, O Lord of hosts. And then let's skip on ahead and take verse 11. 
For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's there a sun. He's a shield to us. A shield. As we've seen earlier that He promised to Abram. Now let's go to Isaiah 40. Oh, this is powerful. I'm not going to read all of this, but there's a lot of verses. But it starts off with this. In 39 chapters of Isaiah, here's the outline of Isaiah, 39 chapters is deep, dark judgment on Israel and all the nations of the world. And He will destroy them all. It does have a promise for Israel. But He's talking about there will be a judgment and then in chapter 40 we get great, good News. Now, within the first 39 chapters, you do see that. But basically, it's dark. And all of a sudden, it's like the light is turned on in chapter 40. Do you know, it's kind of interesting. And, of course, chapter divisions are not inspired. But do you know how many books of the Bible there are? There's 66. How many are in the Old Testament? 39 chapters. And a lot of it is about judgment. But there's good news threaded all the way through there, obviously. But 39 chapters of Old Testament, and by the time we get, or or 39 books, by the time we get to the 40th book, we get good news. Praise God. The promises are fulfilled in Christ. So, what happens here in Isaiah 40 which is the most messianic book there is in all the Bible. You'll see the Messiah threaded all the way through there. And he starts off with this. After all the judgment, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. He's going to judge them. And call out to her that her warfare has ended. It will end. That her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand doubled for all her sins. It's time now for the good news to take effect. Okay, what we're going to have to do is skip ahead Isaiah 40 and verse 10. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. In Hebrewism, arm means strength, the right hand of God, the power of God. He will gather the lambs gently and carry them in his bosom he will gently lead the nursing ewes now watch this who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales who's done that Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who is His counselor, has informed Him? With whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Nobody, right? He's always had that. It was never that He discovered knowledge. 
an understanding he's always had it. He's never changed. He's always been the way that he's been. Much to the disarray that Mormonism has put forth, they say God changes and he's ever becoming more and more bigger in his Godhood. And we too, like him, will be doing the same thing. Saying we will be God's. Well, that's what chapters 40 through 44 is about. I am God and there is no other God. And that's what you will see repeatedly in Isaiah 40. And then, uh, you know, you, you keep looking at it, you'll see those implanted all the way through. I am God. There is no other. So, we get this idea that He is powerful. Look at uh, Isaiah 40. 4042 Uh-oh, I got the wrong one. 22. 22. Thank you. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? It is he who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. This is the great, sovereign, powerful God. And I want to tell you, He takes measure of everything, of all the potentates, of all the powers, of all the socialism, the communism, the humanism, the materialism, everything. And it's like dust. It's nothing to this great powerful God. And they're, they're laughing and scoffing at God as Psalm 2 talks about. And the thing is, is he laughs back at them. Because ultimately, they will be brought to their knees. And they will proclaim that He is Lord. That's what will happen. Whether they are Christians or not remains to be seen. But everybody will bow their knee. He is the great God and how ridiculous it is to think that somebody could challenge God. It's like a drop of a bucket. Isaiah 40, 25 31. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Dunamis, it would be translated into the great diamite. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. Folks, this is us, all believers. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths 
grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men will stumble badly. Yet those, here we go, we all know this one, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We trust in Him. Ultimately, we will never ever get tired. God has never become tired. He is everlasting strength. He never becomes weary. And when we become like Christ, we will complete that journey. And we will never have a need for sleep. To rest a little while, we rest here. Rest in the Lord. There we'll rest in that sense. But we'll never tire, never wear down. Never have anything that just takes us out for a day and we can't function. I want to have to be praying that, Lord, take this disease away, this sickness. Or, Lord, help me get through this. We've already done that. We have glorified bodies. So it leads all the way to glorification. But right now, it means so much, doesn't it? Rest in Christ. With all this, is it possible to lose salvation? We've seen the Romans 8. We've seen all that lead up to, and how could anyone ever do that? These are the same people that will use us. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not get tired. What is that going to be? We will walk and not become weary. It's saying it with certainty. Because of who? Because of what that whole chapter has said all the way through. It's all God who does this. It's comfort. It's assurance. And that's what He's telling the people that are in His covenant. Oh, comfort, oh, comfort my people. And He'll take you all the way to the end. That's point number one. It's been stressed that He is powerful. He said, well, we know that. We could have just gone over that word and moved on to the next. And we've probably gone on through the rest of the chapter and finished it up today. And I go, yeah, you're right. We could. But I think we'd miss a blessing. Because I think as we think on His power, why should we be concerned if you hear something in the news with what is going on, things like uh, are going that it's totally out of our hands, but we say, yeah, but they're absolutely in God's hands. And I'm glad I'm not controlling this thing because I would do my will. <laughs> my will may not be exactly what the purpose of God is. I would pray that God would turn things around because that's good, that's righteous. He wants righteous things. Same time in the back of your mind, but what if it is God's will and this is the wrath and this is it and He's going to judge this country and this world? Praise God. Well, praise God there. We can't lose because we're His. We have been declared righteous and when that happens, you can't change it. Nobody can change it. No circumstances can change it. And that's what He's going to be saying the rest of Romans 8. We can say, well, I think you yourself can. You can say, I'm going to walk away from the Lord. And I've heard people say that. I bet you everyone here has had that said to them. Friend, family. They went so far in the Christian walk 
they were at church, and all of a sudden you didn't see them anymore, and they became less and less, really. And uh, you go to talk to them and say, I don't even believe in him. It's all a lie. I'm an atheist now. Boy, when you hear that. And people have gone for years in church at that. Even been active for a little bit. But a true Christian is not an apostate ever. A true Christian cannot be an apostate. Apostate one will get the their reward. Which is the total opposite of the reward of the believer. Now, number two. Can God's love change or diminish or just cease for us? Can that happen? So in Romans 8, we just said, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And we looked at all those verses in the Psalms and Genesis and such right now. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now what we do here is we're going to go in this verse from the greater to a lesser. They're both good, but what Paul often does is start with the greatest thing and then brings a lesser into his argument. That's the principle that he's using here. It's a proposition that he puts forth. Um, We know that Uh, the form of his argument here is that there's an assurance here. It's a fact. Now, if we ever say, well, you know, I know I'm going to be glorified and I'm never going to go to hell, I'm going to heaven, because I feel a burning in my bosom. Like the Mormons say, there's a burning in the bosom. Well, how absolute is that? How objective is that? Well, it's not. It's subjective. It's not that the subjective is discounted, but the objective truth is where everything is at. We have objective truth. How do I know that I'm going to have glory? Well, the Word of God tells me that. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And this is where a subjective element comes in. But it's still objective because it's really not you saying this. It's the Holy Spirit because you believe Him. You believe His Word. It's His work in you. And so now you are seeing this as an objective truth. I'd much rather have objective truth over what my feelings are telling me. Right? So our assurance is based upon a fact. What is the fact? Well, it's the main one. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, the the old uh, Christian t-shirt that came out after the commercial that was on TV so often, and and the Christian t-shirt said, this blood's for you. (laughs) And it had the cross as the picture on it. You guys remember that? It was from a t-shirt company called Living Epistles. Anyway, these epistles do live, don't they? talk to us. This blood's for you, Jesus says. And of course, that's what it, that's what it took. Uh, that's a fact. 
Historical fact, biblical fact, spiritual fact, it is fact, it's written in the Word of God, and we know it's in there throughout. It's an event, and it belongs to the realm of history. It has been done. It's a fact. So the argument starts that God has given His only Son so that He would die for us. And that's the only way the payment can be made for us to be brought out of this horrible condition that we are in. Um, so, and he will go on to show and anything else that I want to bring. But he starts with the death of his son for us. And then his next argument, he not also uh, with him, freely gives us all things. That's another argument, but the greatest one is the cross. God has already given his son. He cannot refuse to do for us anything else that He deems necessary. The cross was planned. It was not an accident. It was not as time went on that God shifted and He says, uh-oh, now I've got to do something for mankind. What am I going to do? I don't know. Let me think. Let's think, Trinity. Let's go. Let's get this together. That is probably what some people think because a lot of people think that man killed Christ and Satan killed Christ. We killed Christ. And truths to those, the Gentiles, the Jews, and they, they did we, we see that Jews and Gentiles <laughs> killing. Uh, it's even stated in Scripture, but there's something even more so than that. God killed Christ. Now, I'd be hesitant to say that to a lot of people, but I can say it to you guys safely because we'll wait for the Scripture to tell us that, right? God killed him. How can that be? Well, going back to the foundation of the earth, he made his plan. Was he surprised that sin happened? That Adam failed? No. It's all part of it. You say, well, then he caused sin to happen. Uh, be careful how you say that. He is not related to sin. He does not sin. He does not tempt people to sin, although in His will, He uh, purposes in a secondary way, secondary causes, as the Reformers say, that certain things happen that are bad. They are evil. The action of God is found in Isaiah 53. This is the action of God. He loved us. He loved us so much. Have you thought about it? Of course you have. He killed His only Son. How much does He really love us? Well, He killed His own Son. That's how much He loved us. Because He did it for us. How much love could one have to do that. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, or the Messiah. The iniquity 
is to be on Him. Now, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. Render Himself as a guilt offering. The Lord, God, God was pleased to put Him to death because it's the only way that He who loved us so much could be bought and paid for to enter into His kingdom. That's the kind of love that He has. John 19, verse 11. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now He, this time, we're talking about like Judas delivered Him over. But who delivered it from the very outset? It's God Himself. But the way this verse starts, though, you would have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. God knows plans that He be killed. Acts 2.23 This is one of the most formidable verses on that, along with your Isaiah 53. There are other verses, but look in Acts 2.23 This man... Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, there we get foreknowledge and predestination of His Son. It was of God. You nailed to a cross. You did this physically by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Okay, here he says it was he was given over, delivered over. It was predetermined by God. It was foreknowledge of God that this happened. This comes from God to kill his son. And we go to one more. Incredible as it is. 4, 26-28 The kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together this was in prophecy against the Lord and against His Christ, against His Messiah, the Mashiach. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. He anointed Christ, anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, capital Y, and your, capital Y, that's God's purpose, predestined 
to occur. How can you put all of this together and come up with the ultimate understanding of it in a human mind? You can't. But you take it by faith and you know the thinking of God is perfectly right, perfectly true. Yes, He did it. And yes, man did it. God had the power to keep Jesus, His Son, from dying on the cross. And what happens if He does that? We are dead in our sins and trespasses and we're headed right straight to hell. No salvation. So you see, did God do it? Yes. That is all the purpose. Did men do it? Yes, I did it. But He ultimately is the one that had this plan. That's incredible. It's amazing. Second Corinthians 5.21 We sang Jesus Messiah earlier this morning and it was based out of this verse. I turned to the wrong one. I didn't. I got it. Here we go. Wrong page. He made Him. Christ. God. Made Christ. The Son. Who knew no sin. Never sinned. To be sin. On our behalf. There's substitutionary atonement, isn't it? There is the great exchange so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So the righteousness of Christ is put on us, and our sin was put on Him, and that's what happened during that time of death. And then the work was finished. He took on every bit of your sin, my sin, every one that He died for, that was planned to be in His purpose, in His family, that's the ones who He died for. And so it goes. Again, God is responsible for that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. This is high theology, isn't it? This is the Gospel. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision in your flesh... He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. There's what He did. 1 Peter 2.6 For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. 
And he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. God lays in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And of course, as it develops, and we've seen already, He's a chosen stone. And of course, He had to die on the cross and be the spotless lamb and such. And here He's compared to a stone, the precious stone. How about 1 Peter 1.18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but as a in these last times for the sake of you he's for you who through him are believers in God who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God you see God gave us this through Christ this happened He was given glory, and that's what we wait for too. What God has done is my guarantee. What He has done in the past is what He's going to... He's guaranteeing right now that it's done. That He will do. That's a guarantee. And it's all anchored on that Christ. The cross. And by the way, we go back to our Romans now. Romans 8. He who did not spare His own Son, spared not. Go back to Genesis 22, 16. You have Abram, and you have his son Isaac. And we know what's happening here, don't we? He's going to sacrifice his son that was the one that was promised. His only son in that sense. And we know that as he's getting ready to do it, that there is the angel of the Lord who appears. He says, Abraham, he says, here I am. Verse 12, he says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. That's how you do. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He did not withhold him. He spared him not. And then Abraham saw the ram caught in the thicket of his horns, and uh, he was to be sacrificed. And that's a substitutionary atonement again, a great picture. Now look at verse 16. Uh, Well, in 15, check that out. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. There's the promise. Because you didn't withhold your son. Because you spared not. Well, God the Father actually did spare His Son at least for a time. Father, Father, right? Jesus cries out that He's forsaken. 
Why have you forsaken me? That's when he was separated from the Father at that moment. That was, uh, in a sense, like death there. Uh, at the same time, it's, there's a separation. Even though his spirit never ever dies, he's eternal, but yet there is this sense whenever that sin caused this to happen. And of course, we know he dies physically. That was whenever he was forsaken. He, for the first time, was out of the presence of God because of that evil sin that he took from us that was put on him. And he did not spare him. The Father did not. To go through this horrible time, he delivered him up. He delivered his Son up for the full wrath of God. Our sin fell on Christ. We were enemies. And we look at Romans 4.25. God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction He was, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He was delivered up, wasn't He? God the Father delivered him up. And then uh, he was delivered up by Judas. We all delivered him up, Jews, Gentiles. God freely gives us all things with the last thing. This is where it's a lesser argument. He started with the greatest argument of all, Christ on the cross. Where else do you start? And then it's a lesser one. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. He did not hold back His Son. And by the way, He gives us all things. Philippians 4.19 We're just about ready to wrap it up here. We'll do a couple of verses or so. And we see these all things that pertain to even now. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All of His That's everything. Whatever you're needing, that's what He'll give you. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able, there's our power word, to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You'll have everything you need to live here on earth to glorify God, to serve Him. Everything you need right now. All the way on into eternity. Romans 8.28 comes right back and here's our all things Right? That's the all things again. We just read that, and it's, uh, you know, in 828, what is it? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. 
Whatever my circumstances, whatever my weaknesses, whatever the trials, whatever the troubles, whatever the tribulations, whatever my weakness, frailties are, whatever my sin is, it makes no difference ultimately because it's going to come out in the good. He who freely gave up His Son for me, for you, will freely give all things. Listen, if you realize the depth of God's love because you have looked at Christ on the cross and behold Him there taking your sin away, if you get that, then you get all the things. All these things. Whatever that is. He's going to be with you in it. Some are not comfortable. But they're granted freely to us so that we would be made more and more like Christ. Greg Gilbert says this, Scripture makes it clear that the cross must remain at the center of the Gospel. We cannot move it to the side and we cannot replace it with any other truth as the heart center and fountainhead of the good news. To do so is to present the world with something that is not saving and that is therefore not good news at all. The cross is of first importance This is where we find our security. And so he says later on in Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, name it all. Angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing cannot separate us from the love of God. Praise And that's a good note to end on. Praise God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this time that we've had today of worshiping You based upon Your truth, based upon fact. Not just emotions and feelings, those come, but only because of Your truth coming in us and working in us. And then we work it out. Thank You, Lord, for the Son of God. Thank You, Lord, for this Gospel truth, for it is the power salvation. We fear not now because perfect love, and you've demonstrated that, cast out fear. In the Son's name, Amen.